We'd like to welcome you to our current event and weekly Bible study for July 27th, 2008. July 27th, 2008. And we're going to be continuing our teaching last week that we started regarding the Grenada Treaty and disclosure and a lot of these other things that, that we've been talking about. Now, sorry about last week. Uh, regarding part three, we were having some unbelievable technical I would call them demonic glitches last week. We had lights flashing on and off, and the air conditioning was going on and off. And and then finally, I had my my voice recorder next to me, and I had, there's four bars that registers power. And I was at two bars one minute, and I looked down the next, literally probably ten minutes later, and I had no bars, and it had stopped recording. So, for one reason or another, the devil really was trying to hinder last week's teaching. But we got 36 minutes up, and we're going to continue where we left off last week. I'm just going to do a slight, um, I'm going to just backpedal a couple paragraphs. You might have heard this in the last teaching, but I want to reiterate this so it makes a little more sense as we start this particular teaching. We're talking about the Grenada Treaty, again, and this is Gerald Light's letter that Eisenhower, um, to uh, regarding Eisenhower. The first public source alleging a meeting with extraterrestrials was Gerald Light, who in a letter dated April 16, 1954, to Mead Lane, the then director of Borderland Sciences Research Associates, claimed he was part of a delegation of community leaders to an alleged meeting with extraterrestrials at Edwards Air Force Base. In a subsequent article, Mead Lane described Light as a gifted and highly educated writer and lecturer, who is skilled both in clairvoyance and the occult. That shouldn't be of any surprise. Light was a well-known metaphysical community leader in the Southern California area. The alleged purpose of him and others on the delegation was to test public reaction to the presence of extraterrestrials. Now remember, the Illuminati always tests the waters. Okay, So, whether you believe this happened or not, in a way, it's kind of irrelevant, because the fact is, is they're trying to gauge public reaction to the extraterrestrials. They do it all the time. We have all these UFO sightings that are going on, like we had talked about last week now in Britain. There, there's tons of them in America and other parts of the world. We have the abduction scenarios. We have what Hollywood's putting out with things like the X, X-Files and all these particular miniseries that they have, then the, the Hollywood motion pictures. They're always trying to gauge what the public reaction is going to be. They're trying to prepare us for something, obviously. They want people to accept what is coming. They, they, they want them to be prepared mentally for this thing to happen. And they're not devoting all of this effort for no reason. There is a reason behind all of this. Now, it is impossible for me to be absolutely 100% dogmatic as to exactly how the scenario is going to happen, what's going to go down, exactly what is happening, how much of it is the government, how much of it is actually possibly Nephilim uh, posing as these extraterrestrials. It's probably a collaborated effort, most likely. And then you have the technology aspect, which we're going to talk about later in this particular thing. And you have this being in conjunction with the arisal of the Antichrist. That's the scenario. Just so we're kind of clear on that. 
So he goes on to say the alleged purpose of him and others on the delegation was to test public reaction to the presence of extraterrestrials. Light described the circumstances of the meeting as follows. He said, my dear friends, I have just returned from Edwards Air Force Base, at that time known as Muroc Air Force Base. The report is true, devastatingly true. I made the journey in company with Franklin Allen of the Hearst Papers and Edward Norse of the Brookings Institute. Edward Norse was Truman's erstwhile financial advisor. And Bishop McIntyre of um, Los Angeles. When we were allowed to enter the restricted section, this was this meeting between these extra these supposed extraterrestrials. When we were allowed to enter the restricted area, uh, after about six hours in which we were checked of every possible item, event, incident, and aspect of our personal and public lives, I had the distinct feeling that the world had come to an end with fantastic realism, for I have never seen so many human beings in a state of complete collapse and confusion. As they realized that their own world had indeed ended with such finality as to beggar description. As to beg description is what he meant to say. Now, that's what's exactly what's going to happen when this deception goes down. When the whole alien agenda finally comes to a head. When the Antichrist arises and takes power. Probably in conjunction with a pandemic, World War III, possibly a nuclear uh, conflict, possibly martial law, can you imagine if all these things were happening at the same time? And any one of these things could happen right now. We, we see it all the time in the newspapers about a lot of these different scenarios. Can you imagine if they all started happening in conjunction? The panic and the chaos? And then you have these people coming, or these entities coming, supposedly from outer space, saying, you know, listen, we're actually your creators, and you've been lied to, and uh, we're going to straighten you out on this. So, these people at this Air Force base were in a complete state of collapse and confusion. And that's exactly the effect that they want. They want, if you have your faith in any particular thing, they want that faith to be destroyed. Particularly Bible-believing Christians. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. They want you to fall away from your faith through all of these lying signs and wonders and deceptions and miracles, which is the very way that the Bible predicts that the Antichrist and the false prophet and his minions are going to deceive the whole world through the miracles, the lying signs and wonders. And if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. It's predicted. God is sending this strong delusion, as he talks about in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that they will believe a lie, that they might all be damned who receive not the love of the truth. So, this is the greatest deception that's ever been foisted on humanity, ever, that's coming. And we're already seeing a lot of it now, but it's, it's going to get worse. So he goes on to say, um, they realized that their own world had indeed ended with such finality as to beg description. The reality of the other plain what he calls aeroforms, is now and forever removed from the realms of speculation and made a rather painful part of the five separate and distinct types Okay, hold on, I'm sorry. And made rather painful part of the consciousness of every responsible scientific and political group. During my two days visit, I saw with the assistance and the permission of the Aetherians 
I have no words to express my reactions. Now remember, this is a guy highly involved in the occult and the metaphysical world, at the top of his field. He said, I have no words to express my reactions. That's how blown away this guy was. It, it has finally happened. It is now a matter of history. President Eisenhower, as you already know, was spirited over to Muroc Air Force Base one night during his visit to, Sp to Palm Springs recently, and it is my conviction that he will ignore the terrific conflict between the various authorities and go directly to the people via the radio and television. Now, we know this didn't happen. <laughs> if the impasse continues much longer, from what I could gather, an official statement to the country is being prepared for delivery about the middle of May. Well, we know that never happened. Now, this was Remember, this was written in 1954. A long time ago. Still hasn't quite happened yet. We're still waiting. Now, this is where I left off from last week. Now we're going to start afresh here. Um, of course, no such formal announcement was ever made, and Light's supposed meeting has either been the best-kept secret of the 20th century or a fabrication of an elderly mystic known for out-of-body experiences. I, I kind of like the way this guy writes, because he writes very objectively. He's trying to give both sides, okay? We're looking at both sides here. But this is a highly referenced article that we're, we're reading from here as well. Uh, the events that Gerald Light describes in his meeting, in the terms of panic and confusion of many of those present, the emotional impact of the alleged landing, and the tremendous difference of opinion on what to do in terms of telling the public and responding to the extraterrestrial visitors, are plausible descriptions of what may have occurred. Indeed, the psychological and emotional impact Light describes for senior national security leaders at the meeting is consistent with what could be expected for such a life-changing event. A further way of determining Light's claim is to investigate the figures he named along with himself as part of the community delegation that met with these supposed extraterrestrials and whether they could have been plausible candidates for such a meeting. So let's just look at these people individually now. Uh, the first guy was Edward, Dr. Edward Norse. He lived from 1883 to 1974. He was the first chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors to, president, um, to the president and was President Truman's chief economic advisor. Norse officially retired to private life in 1953 and would certainly have been a good choice of someone who could give confidential economic advice to the Eisenhower administration. This is after the meeting had taken place. If Dr. Norris was present at such a meeting, he did so in order to provide his expertise on the possible economic impact of first contact with extraterrestrials. See, this is super, super important. We need to know how is this going to economically impact the country. And what was told to him, I guarantee you, or what he ascertained, was that it would be devastation. Because when, if something like this were to happen, do you think people are like going to go on spending sprees and, and like buy, 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 and you know, I doubt it. They're going to pull their horns in and go into a very uh, guarded mode at that point. It would have probably been economically very devastating for the country had they come out and announced this thing. I think this is why it never got announced, at the time at least. So another one of the individuals that was mentioned was this a man named Bishop McIntyre. Um, by light was Bishop McIntyre. Cardinal 
James Francis McIntyre, so he was a cardinal, not the bird, but the Catholic kind, sorry, um, he was the bishop and the head of the Catholic Church in Los Angeles from 1948 to 1970. He would have been an important gauge for the possible reaction from the religious leaders generally. So now we have, we have the economic guy that's there to gauge. Now we've got one of the main religious leaders. Now it's not the Pope, because they're not going to send the Pope in there. They're going to send somebody that they trust within the Catholic Church to kind of gauge public reaction here. Okay, So... In particular, um, he was from the Catholic Church, one of the most influential and powerful religious institutions on the planet, the Roman Catholic Church. In particular, Cardinal McIntyre would have been a good choice as the representative for the Vatican. Uh, he was appointed the first cardinal in the western United States by Pope Pius Twelfth in 1952. All Cardinal McIntyre's correspondence is closed to researchers, thus making it impossible to confirm what impact the visit to Muroc had on him and what he communicated to other church leaders and to the Vatican. I mean, the Vatican's very, very secretive about these types of things. You know, they, there's all these secrets that they have and this type of stuff. You know, the third secret of Fatima or whatever. I'm still waiting, you know. I, I, I want to know the fourth and the fifth, really. I'm just kidding, sorry. But it's just, it's just crazy. So, Cardinal McIntyre had sufficient rank and authority to represent the Catholic Church and the religious community in a delegation of community leaders. The fourth member of the delegation of community leaders was Franklin Winthrop Allen, a former reporter with the Hearst Newspapers, one of the most powerful newspaper groups at the time. They were the ones that were told to, quote, puff Billy Graham, meaning uh, promote him. A long, long, long time ago, when, unfortunately, Billy Graham got in cahoots with the, uh, essentially, the New World Order. Now, I've done a whole teaching on Billy Graham, if you have any questions about that, and a gigantic PDF document. Now, most of the teachings that I have, just so everyone knows, up on the Internet, most of the time there is what they call a PDF document with it. A lot of times I'll get people emailing me saying they want to know more about this particular subject when there's already a PDF attached to the audio for that thing. They're just not aware of what it is. It's a little button right below the green thing you click on for the, uh, for the uh, sermon audio. It's a little white button that says PDF. You click on that, it'll take you to a separate page, and it'll give you all the documentation. So it can save you a lot of work in, in that regard. Um, you're trying to find this, this information. So if we go further, so now we're talking about uh, Franklin Winthrop Allen, former reporter with the Hearst newspaper. Allen was 80 years old at the time, author of the book instructing reporters on how to deal with congressional committee hearings, would have been a good choice for the member of the press who could maintain confidentiality. Also, these, these, all these people were well advanced in years, and I, figured, I think they figured, well, they're probably not going to live much longer. So... The, the less that they live, I mean, let's face it, if you had five years to live, you've only got five years to maybe possibly spill the beans. Whereas if you were 40 years old, you had 40 years to spill the beans or something like that. So I think they might have been looking at it from that standpoint too. You know, there's just less time for them to, if they change their mind, to come out and spill the beans. These four represented senior leaders of religious, spiritual, economic, and newspaper communities were well advanced in age and status. 
They certainly would have been plausible choices for a community delegation that could provide confidential advice on a possible public reaction to a first contact event, which is all the president would have really cared about, or, or the government. They want to know, okay, what's public reaction going to be? Positive or negative? Is it going, how is it going to affect us spiritually? How is it going to affect us economically? You know, how is the media going to respond to this? That's what they're looking at here. Such a selection would have been constituted as a wise man group that would have been entirely in character for the conservative nature of American society in 1954. While Light may, well, while may well have contrived such a list in a fabricated account or a, quote, out-of-body experience, there is nothing in Light's selection that eliminates the possibility that they were plausible members of such a delegation. Okay, so he's trying to play devil's advocate here. He's not just believing everything that's being told here. Now, this is just one guy we're going to talk about, okay? We're not, we're not like, putting all our eggs in Gerald Light's basket here. We're, there's a lot more to this than, than that. So it may be concluded, then, that the following items all make up circumstantial evidence that a meeting with extraterrestrials, supposed extraterrestrials, occurred. The first is Eisenhower's missing night. The second is a weak cover story used for Eisenhower's absence. The third is Light's description of the actual events at the meeting in terms of the psychological and emotional impact of the described meeting, which is consistent which what, with, what, which is what, with what could be anticipated. I'm sorry, tongue twisting there. The final is Light's description of the composition of of community leaders or wise men at the meeting, these four items collectively provide circumstantial evidence that a meeting with supposed extraterrestrials occurred and that Eisenhower was present. There are a number of other sources alleging an extraterrestrial meeting at Edwards Air Force Base that corresponded to the formal first contact event. These sources are based on testimonies of whistleblowers that witnessed documents or learned from their insider contacts of such a meeting. These testimonies describe what appears to be separate sets of meetings involving different extraterrestrial groups who met with either President Eisenhower or the Eisenhower administration officials over a short period of time. The first of these meetings, the actual first contact event, did not lead to an agreement with the extraterrestrials and they were effectively spurned. In other words, we didn't want to make them, we didn't actually ink a contract with the supposed extraterrestrials on this first meeting that we're describing here. Okay, nothing was done. The second of these meetings did lead to an agreement, and this has been apparently become the basis of subsequent secret interactions with, with these supposed extraterrestrial races involved in the treaty that was signed. There is some discrepancy in the sequence of meetings and where they were held but all agree that a first contact meeting involving President Eisenhower did occur and that one of these meetings occurred with his February 1954 visit to the Edwards Air Force Base. The first version of Eisenhower's meeting is described by one of the most controversial whistleblowers to have ever come forward into the public arena to describe the extraterrestrial presence. William Cooper served on the Naval Intelligence Briefing Team for the commander of the Pacific Fleet from 1970 to 1973 and had access to classified documents and then he had to review in order to fill his, fulfill his briefing duties. He describes the background and nature of the first contact with the extraterrestrials as follows. This is William Cooper's account. 
1953, astronomers discovered large objects in space which were moving toward the Earth. Now, this is the same scenario as in a lot of these Hollywood uh, movies, miniseries, series on TV. They discover all of a sudden these large objects moving toward us from outer space, and that's a very, very common theme. And then he goes on to say, It was first believed that they were asteroids. Later, evidence proved that the objects could only be spaceships. Project Sigma intercepted alien radio communications. When the objects reached the Earth, they took up a very high orbit around the equator. There were several huge ships, and their actual intent was unknown. Project Sigma, a new project, Plato, through radio communications, using the computer binary language, was able to arrange a landing that resulted in a face-to-face -face contact with alien beings from other planets. Now, this is always the big, I believe, one of the main cruxes of the lies that are perpetuated. These alien beings are always from billions of miles away, and they've come here and you know to look into the affairs of men. In fact, they created us millions of years ago, according to the ancient astronaut theory. Now, I've done a whole teaching on this whole ancient astronaut theory. Uh, in regard to the common theme of the extraterrestrials, they're always saying that they created us. We are their little science project, and now we've messed things up so bad, they're going to have to come back into the affairs of men and straighten things out, because we messed things up. Uh, if you want to hear that teaching, just clue in, uh, type in um, either ancient or astronaut, or part of the word, in my keyword search box on my homepage on Sermon Audio, and you can find it. It'll, it'll come right up. You don't even have to have the whole word, just part of it. It'll come up. Um, so that was basically what they were, what they were all about. There, um, if they can convince us that they're from some star system, millions and millions and billions of miles away, what happens is, is the next thing would happen to the average Bible-believing Christian is they start questioning the Bible because they'd say, "Well, I don't remember." I don't remember anywhere in the Bible where it talked about aliens from millions and billions of miles away being in the Bible and all this other stuff. And these types of things. There are some verses that do allude to that, like where it talks about how when Lucifer was Lucifer, he walked across the, the stones of fire. Okay? That, that implies something that was going on in outer space somewhere. But... This is one of the big lies, because that, that's, that's the thing they want you to do. They want you to think there's from some nebulous galaxy, from millions and billions of miles away. They came here. It's very hard for most Christians to try to reconcile that in their mind with the Bible. Okay? The vast majority of time, they've, they're already here. I truly believe that. And they've been here, just like I talked about, as it was in the days of Noah. This is just an elaborate deception ploy. Just one of the more elaborate deception ploys to make you think and, and doubt the word of God. Okay, I guess I said all that to say that. So, anyway, he goes. William Cooper goes on to say, Project Plato was tasked with establishing diplomatic relations with this race of space aliens. In the meantime, a race of human-looking aliens contacted the U.S. government. Oh, wow! So we've got one set of aliens, and then we've got another one that looked like humans, now they're contacting the government. This alien group warned us against the aliens that were orbiting the equator and offered to help us with the spiritual development. Oh, good, that's what we need from them, spiritual development. Because understand that the religious component 
of all that we're talking about truly is the most powerful component that we're dealing with here. You can talk about the economic or the political or the governmental, these types of things, but think about it. It's the religious component that is going to people to fall down and worship the Antichrist. It's not so much, yeah, the economic's nice, and the political's nice, and the fact that he might be able to supposedly stop World War III, that's all well and good. But it's the spiritual component that puts the biggest spell on somebody. That's where the spell comes in, the deception. Wow, he is the Messiah. You know, uh, all hail to the Messiah, this type of, of attitude. So this other group warned against the one group, these alien groups, that they were bad, and they said, um, they offered to help us and to offer us to, to develop spiritually. This is the whole good cop, bad cop, alien scenario that unfortunately William Cooper bought into. That there's good extraterrestrials and there's bad extraterrestrials. Don't believe any of that junk for... I mean, if you believe that, you'll still get deceived. You will. You'll absolutely 100% still get deceived. That's what they want you to believe. That there's good and there's bad ones. This theme is truer today than it was back then. From the research I've done up on the internet. Because if one nefarious evil group comes down and says, we're going to do this to humanity, and then you have another nice group called the Ascended Masters, and hey, they look like humans, and we've done all kinds of teachings on them. Wow, we can trust these guys. They have our best interests at heart. These other guys are bad. We don't like them. Now it's good cop, bad cop, and it's like the whole Hegelian dialectic. Okay, all over again. The bottom line is they end up getting what they want, which is deception and control over humanity. So this, this other alien group that looked like humans warned us against these other aliens and um, then it says these ones that look like humans demanded that we dismantle and destroy our nuclear weapons as the major condition to them helping us. Yeah. So we had to get rid of all our nukes if they were going to help us. That was the major condition because we were bad and we didn't understand and stuff. And then he says they refused to exchange technology, citing that we were spiritually unable to handle the technology which we then possessed, which was the nuclear armaments. So they said, okay, listen, we'll help you, we'll help you do spiritual development, we'll help you deal with these other bad aliens, but you got to disarm. What does that imply? If they disarm, it implies us basically yielding to them as well. I mean, yeah, okay, whatever. We were spiritually unable to handle it. Well, that may well be true. <laughs> the people that did have those types of technologies weren't exactly... But you can kind of see the agenda here. And then it says, They believe that we would use any new technology to destroy each other. This race stated that we were on the path of self-destruction and we must stop killing each other. This is always the theme that you'll see from all the alien abductees and all the brainwashing that goes on. It's the same thing. Then he goes on to say, these terms were met with extreme suspicion, especially the major condition of nuclear disarmament. It was believed that the meeting, that it was believed that meeting, that that condition would leave us helpless in the face of an obvious alien threat. We also had nothing in history to help with the decision. 
Nuclear disarmament was not considered to be within the best interest of the United States. The overtures were rejected. Okay, so these were the good aliens that were trying to help us. These would be considered, quote, the Nordics, or the ascended masters. But we, we didn't want that. They weren't willing to give us technology. And we had to disarm. That, for us, wasn't optional. The one thing, and the one key motivator, as you will see, has always been for us to get their technology. That's always been the key thing, and that's true today with all the tinfoil wearing hat, UFO attendee, Star Trek loving guys that go to the things, they want the technology. They'll sell their soul for the technology that these supposed aliens possess. It's, it's a very common theme. The significant point about Cooper's version is that the humanoid extraterrestrial race was not willing to enter into techno technology exchanges that might w help weapons development, and instead was focused on the spiritual development, which would be the chief concern regarding the ultimate arisal of the Antichrist. I mean, that's the really the main, main thing. You've got to understand who the Antichrist is spiritually. Okay? Like I said, it's one thing to end wars, it's one thing to restore the economy, but I'm talking about the spiritual component. These ascended masters, in this regard, they would be called the human-looking Nordics, extraterrestrial races, they were more concerned about that. They were wanting to usher in the, the Antichrist, essentially. And they knew in order to do that, our spiritual development had to be shifted to their mindset. Confirmation that first contact meeting involved extraterrestrials who were effectively spurned for taking what might be considered a principal stand on technology, assistance, and nuclear weapons comes from the son of a former Navy commander who claimed that his father had been present at the first contact event on February 20th through 21st, 1954. According to Charles L. Suggs, a retired sergeant from the U.S. Marine Corps, his father, Charles L. Suggs, was a former commander with the U.S. Navy who attended the meeting at Edwards Air Force Base with Eisenhower. Sergeant Suggs recounted his father's experience from a meeting and a 1991 interview with a prominent UFO researcher. He is quoted saying, Charles's father, Navy Commander Charles Suggs, accompanied President Ike along with others on February 20th. They met and spoke with two white-haired Nordics. Remember what I said, Nordics? Those are the ones that appear as blonde hair, blue eye, perfect, the whole perfect Aryan master race kind of prototype. It's how they appear, like what Hitler would have liked. Well, they call them the Nordics, and they appear human most of the time. They met with and spoke with two white-haired Nordics that had pale blue eyes and colorless lips. Maybe they needed some lip gloss to kind of get the sheen to their lips going. Oh, sorry. Anyway, the spokesman stood a number of feet away from Ike and would not let him approach any closer. A second Nordic stood on an extended ramp of a biconvex saucer that stood on a tripod landing gear on the landing strip. According to Charlie, there were B-58 Hustlers, which is evidently a, a plane, on the field, even though the first one did not officially fly until 1956. Well, this would imply, you know, technology that they, had, they hadn't released yet. These visitors said that they came from another solar system, which is what they always say. They pose detailed questions about our nuclear testing. That's what their chief concern seemed to be. 
Now, it's kind of weird that in Roswell, when the first UFO went down, was in like 1948 or whatever, that was the chief place that we did nuclear testing in America. The only wing, the only nuclear wing of the bomb group, uh, it was the only nuclear uh, flying bomb group in America. It was out of Roswell. And that's exactly where the, the UFO went down. So I don't know whether their underground testing or whatever had some kind of snafu glitch with one of these supposed flying saucers, caused a malfunction, and it went down. Maybe that's why they were so concerned about the nuclear stuff, because it was the one thing that seemed to really put a snafu in maybe their technology. I can't be dogmatic about that, but that's a theory that's been batted around quite a bit, what I just said. I'm not the only one that's ever thought of that. They, many others have brought that up. Another whist whistleblower who confirms that first contact involved an extraterrestrial race being spurned for their principal stand on technology transfer is the son of the famous creator of the Learjet. Now, notice, I'm not talking about people that don't have any credibility here. Okay, William Cooper, this guy that was that we just quoted, now we've got the, the uh, son of the famous creator of the Learjet, William Lear. John Lear is the former Lockheed L-1011 captain who flew over 150 test aircraft and held 18 world speed records during the late 1960s, 1970s, and early 1980s and was a contract pilot for the CIA. Lear developed a close relationship with CIA director William Colby, who was in charge of covert operations in Vietnam before becoming DCI. DCI, whatever that means. The director of the CIA, I think. According to Lear, there had indeed been a warning from another race prior to an agreement being eventually signed. And he claimed they visited Muroc Edward Air Force Base and the following occurred. In 1954, President Eisenhower met with a representative of another alien species at Muroc Test Center, which is now called Edwards Air Force Base. This alien suggested that they could help us get rid of the greys. Now these are the Nordics. Help us get rid of the greys, but Eisenhower turned down their offer because they offered no technology. And because they wanted us to disarm our nuclear armaments. So again, it's good cop, bad cop. Greys are the bad guys, Nordics are the good guys. Isn't it kind of funny they both showed up at the same time? If only one of them had shown up, we would have no good cop, bad cop scenario. We would only have maybe bad cop, let's say the greys. But when both of them show up at the same time, it's like, oh yeah, see... They're bad, and we're good, and we're going to help you out here. You know, I mean, I know you're probably overwhelmed. These little gray guys show up, and, uh, you know, they're pretty intimidating, and they've got this technology that you've never seen. But don't worry, we got you covered. We'll take care of you. Just disarm. We're not going to give you any technology. We're going to help you with your spiritual development. That's what they wanted back then. Could you imagine if they would have yielded to that? Now, I know it wasn't part of God's plan. At that point, this is part of the strong delusion. But had they yielded to it, I think it would have pushed the timetable for the tribulation up quite a bit further. Had they done it. And I know, it's, it's nobody in speculating, but that's ultimately why they were here. To usher in the Antichrist. Right now we're on the cusp of that, right? Okay, well, all I'm trying to do is make it easier for you to, to discern the signs of the times and to see how the scenario may play out. I'm not 
and again, I'm not being dogmatic. I'm, I'm, I'm reading from it a reference, a highly referenced report. These are what different military officials were saying, okay? You draw your own conclusions. So, Cooper and Lear's idea of more than one extraterrestrial race interacting with the Eisenhower administration is supported by other whistleblowers, such as former Master Sergeant Robert Dean, who, like Cooper, had access to top-secret documents while working in the Intelligence Division for the Supreme Commander of the U.S. Military Command. In Dean's 27-year distinguished military career, he served at the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers in Europe, where he witnessed these documents while serving under Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. Dean claimed, quoting, the group at the time, there were just four that that they knew of for certain, and the Greys were one of those groups. In other words, there were four groups of these supposed extraterrestrials. The Greys were one of them. There was a group that looked exactly like we do. There was a human group that looked so much like us that they really drove the admirals and the generals crazy because they determined that these people, and they had seen them repeatedly, that they had contact with them, there had been abductions and there had been contacts. It's kind of disjointed the way he wrote that. But um, in other words, there was a group that looked exactly like humans and it drove the admirals and the, and the upper brass crazy because they probably couldn't tell the difference. There were two other groups. There was a very large group. I would say they were six to eight feet, sometimes nine feet tall, and they were humanoid, meaning they looked human but not quite. Okay, but there, but they were very pale, very white, and they didn't have any hair on their bodies at all. Maybe they were a descendant of the hairless rat or one of those hairless cats. I don't know. Just speculation there. Sorry, just kidding. Um, but isn't this kind of funny? There was this one group, and they were like six to anywhere from nine feet tall, and they were humanoid. Kind of sounds like the giants of Genesis 6, doesn't it? I mean, that's probably what they looked like. There were giants in the land. And I'm sure that they looked human, but probably not quite. Kind of humanoid. Anyway, we go further. And then there was another group that had a sort of a reptilian quality to them. We had encountered them, military people and police officers all over the world have run into these guys. They have vertical pupils in their eyes. Huh, like a serpent? Well, let's, we're going to look at that real quick here. They all had vertical pupils in their eyes, and they seemed to have a quality very much like what you would find on the stomach of a lizard. So, these were four they knew of in 1964. Now, I'm not the one saying this, okay? This is like the fourth witness we've had here. And this is from uh, former Master Sergeant Robert Dean, who had 27 years of, of distinguished military service at the Supreme Headquarters and the Allied Powers in Europe, okay? So, we're not talking about some crackpot here. That's from him, not me. Now, where can we get on the last paragraph that we just read, where can we get in the Bible any maybe some biblical confirmation of this thing? Okay, Because he said, this last group, they had vertical pupils in their eyes, and they had, uh, they had the quality very much like you would find on the stomach of a lizard, like the skin, in other words. Well, Matthew, let's just go... Just do a quick Bible study here. Matthew twenty four thirty eight and Luke seventeen twenty six says, and as it is, and as it was in the days of Noah, Noah, Noe or Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. So what is the significance of this statement, and how does it relate to the Nephilim, the UFO, or the alien agenda? The flood 
epic of Genesis 6 begins with a strange account of the sons of God. In this particular case, they are angels in the Old Testament. Got into a debate this week with a guy that insisted, oh no, the sons of God is used in the New Testament as, you know, New Testament Bible believers. That's true. But the Bible also says, to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 And that we are to be good Bereans and search these things out in the scriptures to see if they are so. That man had not done that. Here's why I'm saying that. You have to look at the context of which the phrase is used in the Bible. The sons of God is used five times, that exact phrase, in the Old Testament. Two times in Genesis 6, three times in the book of Job. Every single time it is in reference to angels. Okay? The sons of God were still the sons of God, which is considered essentially a good angel, but then they fell. Okay? After they had fallen, they would not be considered the sons of God anymore. They would be considered fallen angels. Okay, But when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, they were still, they hadn't quite fallen yet. Okay, You look at the book of Job, there's three other times it's used. That particular exact phrase. And it's always in regard to angels. Okay, So, the sons of God had taken human wives. In Genesis 6, 4 it says, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also after that, also after that. See, that's a verse nobody ever wants to talk about. Huh. So, no, giants were just for Genesis 6. We're never going to have that again. But it, it says right here in the King James Bible, and that's why it's so important to have the right Bible, it says, and also after that. Well, where does it say that? Well, just look at the promised land when um, Joshua was you know, leading the Jewish race into the promised land to take it. Who had Satan prepositioned in the promised land? What was the biggest obstacle in the promised land for the Jews? Well, obviously it was the giants. I mean, when they first went in there, they said, you know, we're as grasshoppers in their sight. And, and it caused them to roam the wilderness for 40 more years because they lacked the faith to go in and possess it. Because they saw giants and we were grasshoppers in their sight. And the only one that had the faith to believe it was Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two the only two people in the Jewish race that had the faith to believe it. So God had to essentially kill the rest of the Jews. A whole other generation came up and then they went and they possessed the land. They had to have they had to have enough faith to, to go in there and believe that they could do what God was calling them to do. It wasn't about the Jews. It was about them having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the God of heaven, to believe they could go in, take the promised land. What was the obstacle? The giants that were in the land. The Anunnaki. The Rephaim. These types of things. The Zazuman. These are different names that they were called. Okay? They went in there. They had to kill and slay everything. Man, woman, beast, child. In a lot of these cities. Because everything had been so cursed and corrupted. That they had to kill and utterly slay everything. That is the reason they had to do that. Because people say, oh, God's... God's a God of hate because they killed babies. You know what? If it was a Nephilim baby, that thing, I'm sorry, it cannot be redeemed. You cannot redeem something where the seed has been corrupted. If the seed has been corrupted, that's the foundation. And if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? So if the seed gets corrupted through Satan, and we're going to look at that in a second, it cannot be redeemed. Jesus did not come back to redeem Satan's seed. He came back to redeem mankind. 
That was the deal. That was what was sealed on the cross. Through his shed blood, through his death, burial, and resurrection, that's what Jesus came to do. He didn't come back to redeem de devils. Okay, so that's so if anybody has that question in their head, oh God's so cruel or whatever. No, that's why it had to be done. It would have been much more merciful for God to do that than for that race of giants to procreate further, further corrupt society, just like it was in Genesis 6, and take over the whole world and corrupt humanity and his seed. What was more merciful? So see, just remember, God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than ours. So hopefully that's cleared up for you if you've ever had, if that's ever bothered you that. Because it's very easy when, when you start looking at it in, in light of this. So, the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bear them, and they bear children to them. Okay, these fallen angels, now they were fallen, came into the daughters of men, they bear them children, the same became mighty men of old, the men of renown, this is where we get the Greek mythology from, and all these things about Hercules, and Achilles, and all this stuff, it's where it all comes from. Okay, just so you know, because I mean... Isn't it nice to be able to like explain all this stuff that's happened in the past, and you can do it biblically? But unfortunately, you just don't get a lot of this most of the time in the average church in America or worldwide. They're not taught it. They're not trained it. This stuff isn't popular. They would lose a lot of their congregation. They would lose a lot of money. Most of the time. Not everybody, but most of the time. The Hebrew word, which is translated giants, is also is from the word Nephilim, or Nephilim, which means the fallen ones. Jude, Jude describes them as angels having left their first estate. See, they they left their first estate. The estate was where they lived, which was in the heavenly realms. They came down, saw the daughters of men, took them wives. They went into a realm they should have never, ever, ever been in. They left their first habitation or their first estate. They fell. These fallen angels came to earth for their own purposes and, this is the key, to corrupt the seed of humanity and ultimately destroy the human civilization so as to negate the biblical statement made below by God himself. Now, this statement I'm going to read next. Okay, What was their purpose? Well, I, I guarantee you Satan was spurring them on. But their purpose was, yes, self-centered, but also, ultimately, what was the satanic purpose? To corrupt the seed. Genesis 3, 14 and 15 says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Now this is where God's pronouncing judgment, on Eve and on the serpent. The Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go. And dust shalt, be, shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee, war, enmity is war, between thee, the serpent, and the woman, and then he gets even more further in clarification, and between thy seed, Satan's seed, says Satan has a seed. A seed is something typically literal. Okay, and obviously if we see Genesis 6, it was a literal seed. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Between thy seed and her seed, the woman's seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And there's many 
uh, biblical commentators that would say when it says, it shall bruise thy head, is in reference to Jesus Christ overcoming Satan at the crucifixion. Okay? Ultimately winning the war. Granted, I understand the battle's still there, but ultimately, Jesus Christ paid the price and won the battle. It shall bruise the head, thou shall bruise his heel. If Satan's looking at this verse in Genesis 3, he's thinking, okay, there's this prophecy that the woman's seed is going to bruise my head. Huh. How can I stop that? The only way I can stop that prophecy is if I corrupt the seed to such a point where there's no viable humans left. If I can corrupt the seed so totally that there's no humans left, then that seed can't bruise my head. That's the deal right there. I think it's pretty obvious. That was what Genesis 6 was all about. It had gotten so bad that there were only eight people God spared on the planet in the ark. Virtually all the other seed had been corrupted and all the other righteous people had died out at that point. God killed everything with breath in its nostrils. Okay, The book of Enoch even refers to that they had defiled the birds and the fish and the, and the, um, uh, the cattle and things of this nature. Yeah, Doug brought up a good point. We've done a whole teaching on the cloning issue and on the how they're trying to corrupt the seed now. It's just like it was in the days of Noah. Remember, that's what Jesus said it was going to be like. Well, it's not only this one aspect I'm talking about, but look at how the seeds are all being corrupted around the world. They're doing all this genetic modification of seeds, whether it's being grown in the field. They're combining um, cow and human genes. They, I talked about that before. Pig and human all this under the guise many times of stem cell research and things of this nature, they're really just playing God. And a lot of it, I just believe, is to corrupt humanity to the maximum amount that they can possibly do. It's not going to make make somebody that's human unhuman, but if they can corrupt us and weaken us where we're not thinking properly and where we're not healthy, they still accomplish very much. It's very, very tough to fight a battle if physically you don't feel feel well. And I don't care if it's in prayer or whatever. If we're three-part beings, body, soul, spirit. If the devil can get you in your physical body, that's fine for him, because that's always going to limit you. Uh, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to open you and, and weaken you in other ways as well. So, notice it said, Lord, the Lord God said unto the serpent, and then he talks about the serpent's seed. Isn't it kind of weird that you have these things that show up and they have beautiful... He's describing them, not me, he is, describing them with vertical pupils in their eyes, like a, like a serpent would have. Okay, and their skin was the quality of the stomach of a lizard, okay? Now again, I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail any further. I'm just saying it. Isn't that interesting? We have that biblical confirmation there of Satan's seed. So if we go further, it says in his letter, Gerald Wright points to the intense disagreement amongst Eisenhower officials in responding to the extraterrestrials at Edwards Air Force Base. Such intense disagreement may predictably have occurred if the national security officials were responding to the extraterrestrial request to abandon the pursuit of weapons technology. Given the intensity of the Cold War, the national security officials present 
may well have decided it was more prudent to seek better terms before agreeing to the extraterrestrial's request. White's testimony implies that the meeting at Edwards Air Force Base did not result in an agreement, but instead resulted in intense disagreement between Eisenhower officials. According to the testimonies examined so far, the February 20th, 21st, 1954 meeting was not successful, and the extraterrestrials were spurned due to their refusal to enter into technology exchanges and insistence on the nuclear disarmament by the United States, and presumably other major world powers. So in other words, what they're saying is the Nordics had come, and we wanted technology, they didn't want to give it to us, plus they wanted us to disarm, and all the other major world powers. We had no interest in that, evidently is what they're saying. Cooper describes circumstances of a subsequent agreement that was reached after the failure of the first meeting. While Cooper has a different version of dates and times for the 1954 meetings, he agrees that there were two sets of meetings involving different extraterrestrials meeting with President Eisenhower and or Eisenhower administration officials. I mean, if they were going to come to anybody, they're going to have to come to the President because ultimately... It's going to have to be him and his administration that makes this decision. Later in 1954, the race of large-nosed, I haven't heard of these, large-nosed gray aliens, which had been orbiting the Earth, landed at Holloman Air Force Base. Now, this was the bad cop aliens that had, we had supposedly been warned about okay, by the good aliens. A basic agreement was reached. The race identified themselves as originating from a planet around a red star in the constellation of Orion, which we know as Betelgeuse, which is really weird because there was a like this really macabre comedy-type horror movie called Beetlejuice a long time ago that I watched that was very, very similar to this word. Again, Hollywood many times mimics things that in this thing. I don't know if there's any connection there. There may be. Anyway, and the constellation Orion is always associated with evil things, typically. Okay? They stated that their planet was dying and that at some unknown future time they would no longer be able to survive there. The meeting at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico has reportedly been the site of subsequent extraterrestrial meetings with the same extraterrestrials who will be shown who signed the 1954 treaty. In 1972-1973, for example, the producers Robert Eminger and Alan Sandler had allegedly been offered and witnessed actual Air Force film footage of a meeting involving gray extraterrestrials that occurred at Holloman Air Force Base in 1971. Cooper explained the terms of the 1954 treaty reached with the gray extraterrestrials as follows. This is William Cooper saying this. The treaty stated that the aliens would not interfere in our affairs, and we would not interfere in theirs. We would keep their presence on Earth a secret. They would furnish us with advanced technology. This is what we wanted. Remember, it was all about the technology. Now, isn't it kind of funny that since that point, our technology has exploded like no other time in the history of man ever, not even to be compared with? Isn't that kind of a weird, strange coincidence? Food for thought... They would furnish us with advanced technology and we would help and they would help us in our technological development. They would not make any treaty with any other earth nation. This is this was just America. 
they could abduct humans on a limited and periodic basis for the purpose of medical examination and monitoring of our development. Wow, isn't that a strange coincidence? That's about when all the abduction scenarios started happening. These didn't happen in the early 1900s or in the 1800s. Or if they did, it was on a very incredibly limited basis. No. Since then, we've had literally millions of people that have said they are abductees. Now, you're telling me they're all crazy. I don't think so. Millions. 3% of the population. There was a... There was a, a uh, there's been different studies done, the, that Roper study that I had talked about before. Like at least 3%. Say they've had a close encounter, the first kind, of abduction experience, or face-to-face. Isn't that kind of weird that at the same time we supposedly make this treaty, our technology absolutely explodes, the advent of the modern computer era, all these things that we would we had thousands of years prior to that where we had not done anything Anything like that. Now all of a sudden, we have this explosion of technology and the modern day alien abduction scenario start and the modern day bombardment of motion pictures, um, the TV, the books, everything on this alien scenario. Huh. Kind of a weird coincidence. Now, they agreed that they would only abduct humans on a limited and periodic basis for just the purpose of medical examination, monitoring our development. Hey, they developed us anyway, that's what they say. With the stipulation that the humans would not be harmed and would be returned to their point of abduction. That's what always happens when they get abducted. I watched this little clip um, from the History Channel yesterday up on YouTube, and it talked about the famous Barney and Betty abduction, okay, that happened, you know, in this time time era. It was like the first one, it was like the first one where the greys showed themselves to be really evil, I guess. And that was, the, that was kind of the advent and the start of this whole thing. Now, it may have occurred before that, but this was the most famous one. So the stipulation was the humans would not be harmed, they would be returned to their point of abduction, which is typically what always seems to happen. Well, they wipe their memory clean, and they, them, they return them to the point of abduction, and the, the humans, unless they go through that hypnotic regression stuff, which I don't advise because it's new age from the pit of hell, but unless they undergo that, many times they don't even know what happened to them. With no memory of the event, and that the alien nation would furnish... Majesty 12, which was with the list of human contacts and abductees on a regularly scheduled basis. The Majesty 12 was a group of people that were commissioned by the president to monitor this whole thing. Okay, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So just some interesting things to look at here, I think, you know. Kind of hard to, to deny some of the things that have taken place since this. But, so another whistleblower source for a treaty having been signed is Phil Schneider, a former geological engineer that was employed by corporations contracted to build underground bases and worked extensively on black projects involving extraterrestrials. He revealed his own knowledge in the treaty in the following. He said, back in 1954, under the Eisenhower administration, the federal government decided to circumvent the Constitution of the United States and form a treaty with alien entities. It was called the 1954 Grenada Treaty. 
which basically made the agreement that the aliens involved could take a few cows and test their implanting techniques on a few human beings, but that they had to give details about what was involved with these people. Well, you know they're not going to honor it. You think the devil's going to ever honor his agreements? Please. Schneider, now, what, what would be their motivation for taking all these people? Huh. What was their main motivation in the, the days of Genesis 6? Why did the fallen angels come down? Well, to procreate with women? To create a race of fallen ones? Giants? Nephilim? Huh. Maybe that's the same thing that's going on today with all these alien abduction scenarios where these women turn up pregnant and then, you know, around the 6th or 7th month they don't know how they got pregnant as well and then around the 6th or 7th month they get abducted again the baby's gone. Huh. Maybe there's a connection there. I don't know. Am I going to be dogmatic? No. I'm just saying. Something to think about. Schneider's knowledge of the treaty would have come from his familiarity with the range of compartmentalized black projects in interaction with other personnel working with extraterrestrials. Yet another whistleblower source for an agreement signed is Dr. Michael Wolf, who claims to have served on various policy-making committees responsible for the extraterrestrial affairs for 25 years. He claimed... He claimed that the Eisenhower administration entered into the treaty with the extraterrestrial race and that this treaty was never ratified as, a con as constitutionally required. Well, of course it's not. I mean, unless they would have announced it, they couldn't do it in any kind of constitutional way. Significantly, a number of whistleblowers argue that the treaty that was signed involved some compulsion on the part of the extraterrestrials. Don Phillips is a former Air Force serviceman and employee on clandestine aviation products projects who testified having seen documents describing the meeting between President Eisenhower and the extraterrestrials and the background to a subsequent agreement. He says, now how many, what is this, like the sixth or seventh witness now we're already talking about? He said, we have records from 1954 that there were meetings between our own leaders of this country and the ETs here in California, and as I understood it, from the written documentation, we were asked if we would allow them to be here and do research. I have read, I have read that our reply was, well, how can we stop you? In other words, you know, again, the shock and awe of meeting with these things. Well, how are we going to stop them? You know, and then, you know, you are so advanced, is what we were saying to them. And I will say by this camera and this sound that it was President Eisenhower that had this meeting. Now, again, this is Don Phillips, a former Air Force serviceman who testified and said this exact quote. He was saying it in front of a camera, a recorded camera, in other words. Colonel Philip Corso, a highly decorated officer that served in the Eisenhower National Security Council, alluded to a treaty signed by the Eisenhower administration with the extraterrestrials in his memoirs. He wrote, quote, We have negotiated a kind of surrender with them the extraterrestrials. As long as we couldn't fight them, they dictated the terms because they knew what we feared most was disclosure. So see, it would be like going into somebody that had apparently, or seemed to have, infinitely more power than you. Are you going to dictate the terms of that contract? 
Like if you were gonna if you were gonna go and um, like to the mob or something, are you gonna dictate the terms of that contract? No, they're gonna dictate the terms. You're gonna kind of do what they tell you to do. They knew what we feared most of all was disclosure, and I believe that's why they believed that if disclosure happened economically, we would have this massive upheaval. It would devastate the economy, and so many other facets and areas of most people's lives. They did not want that to happen. Now, all the stuff that we've been seeing for the last 50 years in Hollywood and in all these things that I've mentioned is to prepare us for the inevitability of disclosure that most likely is going to be in close conjunction with the arrival of the Antichrist. Makes sense biblically to me. Okay, the strong delusion that's coming. Corso claims of a negotiated surrender suggests that some sort of agreement or treaty was reached with which he was not happy with. According to uh, William Cooper, the gray extraterrestrials signing the treaty were not trustworthy. Yeah, you know, the devil's not really trustworthy. You, you know, you can't really believe the guy. By 1955, or one year later, it became obvious... This was only one year later. They signed the treaty in 1954. By 1955, it became obvious that the aliens had deceived Eisenhower. Can't trust him any farther than you can throw him. I always wanted to see how far I could throw one. You know what I mean? I always wanted to see him. I bet you I could launch one of them through the window. Anyway, sorry. Um, it had become obvious that the aliens had deceived Eisenhower and had broken the treaty... It was suspected that aliens were not submitting a complete list of human contacts and abductees to Majesty 12 Oversight Committee, and it was suspected that not all abductees had been returned. Whoa! So, hold on. They're abducting way more people than they say they were going to abduct, which in a way kind of was what was going on in Noah's day. Fallen angels had come down, they took a wise, all that they chose, it said. Okay. Huh. And what was the result? Babies. Huh. Nephilim. Kind of weird, isn't it? So maybe we're seeing some parallels here. So they were abducting way more people than they said. They weren't giving them a list. And some of these people weren't even getting returned. Well, where do we see that in Hollywood? Well, there's been all kind of shows where people get abducted particularly lately. Two miniseries in particular. One of them, Steven Spielberg. The other um, for, was called Taken. It had the biggest budget for a miniseries that had ever, ever been launched. Had Dakota Fanning as the chief little girl. And what was the motivation? The aliens had come down and they had taken people. And these people... Typically, particularly Dakota Fanning, who's the most famous child actor right now that there is, they had special powers. Always had to do with special powers. They were going to ultimately be the saviors for humanity. At the end, Dakota Fanning gets taken, and she will probably be returned at some other date. But she had this tremendous power. Okay? And what was Dakota Fanning? She was part alien part human being. That was what was stated in the show. In fact, that was the whole scenario of the show. These people that weren't even 
fully human, although they looked fully human, were being put back into humanity in order to affect humanity. There's another miniseries called the 4400, where, guess what? 4400 people since like 1948 have been abducted. All of a sudden, one day, there's this comet hurtling back toward Earth. We fire every nuclear warhead at it we can fire. It doesn't even phase it. And this, this ball of light comes over this lake in Seattle. It explodes, and then all of a sudden, on the beach, are 4,400 people standing. These are people that have been abducted over the last 50-plus years. You think that might... Maybe it might happen. Who knows? But these people come back and they have extraordinary powers. They all have abilities. Everyone has a different ability. It kind of harkens back to the whole star child, indigo children thing that we're seeing now. I wonder if these could be hybrids. Like the Nephilim. Hmm. They spent a lot of quality time on the mothership. I don't know. It sounds like they may be... Uh, Something that's not good. But they're going to appear good. They're going to appear like the saviors to humanity. There's all kind of things that Hollywood is doing right now to convince us that there's people out there that have these extra powers. These supernatural powers. They're going to come with all lines, signs, and wonders. And they're going to point everybody, ultimately, to the Ascended Masters and the Antichrist when he arises. I, I, I think that's how it's going to go down. All of this is just one part of Satan's ultimate plan to deceive the nations. Okay? I'm not going to put all my eggs in this one basket. I'm not going to put all my eggs in the whole thing that everything's a Zionist conspiracy, or everything is a Nazi conspiracy, or everything's the Illuminati. It's a combination effort. Okay? Satan has many spokes on his wheel. Satan's at the center. He's got all these spokes on the wheel that go outward. Every one of them is a different way where humanity will be controlled and deceived. This is just one. Okay, so don't confuse me to think that I think this is the only thing that matters. I, I don't think that. That's why we have such a broad array of things that we talk about in these teachings. Similarly, if we go further, Lear argued that the gray extraterrestrials quickly broke the treaty and could not be trusted. A deal was struck that in exchange for advanced technology from the aliens, we would allow them to abduct a very small number of persons, and we would periodically be given a list of those persons abducted. We got something less than the technology we bargained for, and found the abductions exceeded by a million-fold what we naively agreed to. A million-fold. Hmm. Imagine that. Other whistleblowers also suggested that the extraterrestrials who signed the treaty with Eisenhower couldn't be trusted. Schneider claimed that despite the treaty's provisions on the number of humans who would be abducted for experiments, the aliens altered the bargain until they decided they wouldn't be able to abide by it at all. You make a deal with the devil, you think he's going to honor it? As mentioned earlier, Colonel Philip Corso similarly believed that the extraterrestrials that the Eisenhower administration entered into agreements with could not be trusted. Corso believed these forced a negotiated surrender, suggesting an extraterrestrial agenda that was suspect. I'm going to go ahead and end part one there, and we're going to, we're going to pick up here. There's a couple important points coming up here. We're going to end here and uh, go to part, I guess this is going to be part five.